Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. We've finished recapping and discussing those recaps of The Fifth Head of Cerberus for five or so episodes at this point. But we haven't really gotten a chance to look at the story as a whole, and that's what we're going to do this episode. We are going to look at the whole first novella of this trilogy of novellas and talk about it. And we're going to explore the themes and the motifs. We're going to talk about writing craft. And of course, we're going to dig in on the puzzles and the mysteries. Yeah. And I just want to make a note here that, you know, as it's my job to run the discussion for for this uh, novella, that, that you may have noticed that I haven't brought a lot of outside scholarship into it like we normally do. And that's because most of the scholars and essayists and writers on Wolf who discuss this text take the three novellas as a whole. And so there's a lot that they bring in that we just haven't gotten to yet. So we're going to really be discussing our reading and what we bring to it in this episode. Before we get going, we just want to say a huge thanks to the many new supporters we've gotten on Patreon uh, in the past few months. We're extraordinarily touched by people's generosity. And I'm also just really excited to say that we're at this point only a few dollars away from hitting our first goal that's going to let us do more stuff for people. Uh, and we hope we get there soon. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I also echo your sentiment, Glenn. It is awesome to see the support that fans of Wolf and listeners of ours have given. Well, on that note, Let's just go straight for the thing that people seem to love most about Jane Wolfe, which is the the puzzles and the mysteries. And there are several really fascinating puzzles and mysteries in just the first novella alone. But I think that what we should start with is the name of the narrator. This is one that has really captivated Wolf scholars. And I've actually made a real point during the recaps to insist on calling him the narrator, though if you pick up any work of scholarship on this story and certainly on the collection that it's a part of, people you'll, you'll find that people call him number five. But I really wanted to emphasize the fact that we don't ever get a proper name for him, that he is truly anonymous throughout the text. Number five is not a name. It's a designation that another character gives him. But I think that we can speculate many people have about the name of the narrator. And Brandon, I'm going to kick this one over to you. What is this narrator's name? Well, I think we can say for certain that the narrator's name is Gene Wolfe. And the most compelling evidence for this was really developed by Robert Borsky in his essays, Kawe Kanem. I know I said I wouldn't be bringing scholarship into it, but this is one where the argument is very clear. Um, the most compelling piece of evidence is the, uh, Aunt Janine's name. Um, in this story, Aunt Janine is the aunt or perhaps great aunt of the narrator. And we also learn that she is an outcrossing of the father's father's line. And the name that she's given Janine is the feminine of Jean. Um, we also learn that the narrator's last name begins with a W in the episode in the library and that the 
um, Cerberus statue outside of the Maison du Chien is perhaps a reference to the family's patronym, which is like dog or wolf. So given that sort of argument, we get that the that the narrator's name is Gene Wolfe. We pointed out in our episode the number of references Wolfe makes to his own early stories in this book. I think that's another argument that it is uh, Gene Wolfe. So to me, that's the narrator's name. But I think why Wolfe doesn't identify as, as the narrator, why he doesn't give himself that name is another question entirely. And all of this seems more than anything to be about Wolf just making making jokes about his own work. And a lot of this is wrapped up in the two libraries that we see in this story, right? The father's personal library, the library in the basement of the Maison du Chien, in which the narrator is told that all of the books that he sees in there were written by his father, but yet then he cannot find any of his father's books in the library. And we should be clear that Wolf wrote this novella only right around the time that Operation Ares, his first novel, was being published. And so this idea for this joke probably germinated at a time when he had not written a book yet, or certainly had one published. And so I think this is him poking fun at himself, uh, and also maybe poking fun at his ambitions. And I think we see that mirrored in the way he references Werner Vinge, who at this time also had only written a few short stories and had not published a novel. And so the fact that he sees, you know, Werner Vinge as being a long-standing published author, remembered even on the colonial planet, uh, Saint Croix, and yet none of his stuff is remembered, both speaks to his ambitions and insecurities, perhaps as an author. Yeah, and I do think he's just having a good-natured laugh at himself, and and all of that really is in jokes for his writer friends. I mean, his friend Kate Wilhelm, who is also the wife of his editor to whom the book is dedicated, is thrown into that scene as well. Uh, Wolf, you know, renowned for his sense of humor, as he tells him tells us himself uh, in this very story. Uh, it's delightful to to see here. But I do think that all of this raises a serious question that we should consider, which is about Mr. Million. If Mr. Million is the uploaded consciousness of the progenitor of all of these clones, of the individual who supplies the DNA that all of these clones are produced from, and knowing that this cloning technology is developed in the late 20th century, the last quarter of the 20th century, to be precise, I have to wonder, is Mr. Million, or the personality at least that is uploaded into a machine and becomes Mr. Million, is that the original Gene Wolfe. And if he is, what is Gene Wolfe, the real writer of this text, getting at? I think that's just a fantastic question. And my initial instinct is to say, I don't think Mr. Million is the original Gene Wolfe. But thinking about it a little more, I'm reminded of the Brothers Karamazov by, by Dostoevsky, where if Mr. Million is the original Gene Wolfe, the progenitor of this line, he is taking the role of author here in a strange way. And this story reads then that Wolfe is indulging his worst instincts, his worst sense of himself, um, his worse, worser personality traits, and he's following them along a line to their conclusion. He's investigating his own darkness in the same way Dostoevsky does, where he splits 
the elements of his personality, the man of faith, the saint, the atheist, the passionate man, the criminal, and and the, the kind of horrid father, and he explores them all through different characters in his story. It seems as though that type of thing is going on here, though Wolf has a little bit more to say on the science side of things rather than the spiritual side of things, where he is saying if these worst instincts, if these negative parts of myself get conditioned more and more and more down the line, what is the worst possible self that can be made? And investigating that. And so in a sense, maybe Mr. Million is Gene Wolfe, the author, as Gene Wolfe is writing this, forced to witness his him following his worst self down the line of generations and seeing how his traits get developed and disintegrate and get worse. And so at the end of the story where we have the narrator saying he's disclosing himself to himself, maybe that is also the project of Wolf, the author in this story in some, in some sense. Yeah, I'm going to dovetail on that. It struck me that Wolf here is thinking about his own identities, right? He's thinking about himself as an actual person who looks at himself in the mirror in the morning when uh, he shaves everything except his glorious mustache and brushes his teeth and ties his tie and goes to work. He's contrasting that with the artificial persona that people like the two of us construct in our minds about who Gene Wolfe is based on the words that he's published in magazines and as novels. Uh, Because it seems that if Mr. Million is the original Gene Wolfe, he's a poor approximation of the fullness of the genuine Gene Wolfe, the, the engineer, the writer, the father, the husband, the son, the former soldier, right? This is a robust person with different identities and different personas, depending on who he's with and what he's doing. And Mr. Million seems to be one thing. And I think that if Wolf wants us to be thinking about whether or not Mr. Million is him, I think that might be the point that he's getting at. I also suspect he just thought it was funny. He's doing a lot here. There is a little bit of playfulness for sure. But I also think in the same way that I'm going to stick to my guns here on Dostoevsky in the same way uh, Dostoevsky names the father of the Karamazovs, gives him his own first name, Fyodor, um, is the same way that, that Wolf is referring to himself here. I think he's both having a bit of a laugh and examining himself through his writing. This is the second Wolf story we've gotten that is it about that is about a really severe childhood trauma and the way that that could impact a person as they develop. So I don't know. Wolf is examining his own darkness and that's kind of where <laughs> where I'm going to hang this question. Yeah, I think by now Members of the Wolfpack will not be surprised to hear that you went to the dark place and I thought it was funny. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I'd love to hear what, what listeners think about this this puzzle. Uh, but let's let's move on to the, the next one. And and that is Vale's hypothesis, which is to me, this was like the most exciting part of the book. This was the part that really got my pulse racing where I want to know more about it. Uh, fortunately, we're going to get to know more about it in the next story. But Right now, based only on what's in this story, the first novella, do we think that any of the people that we met are abos and and not 
humans? Or is it that this mystery is just meant to emphasize the the themes and the motifs? I think I suggested at the at our last episode that I really turned around on this and saw the abo the presence of Vale's hypothesis in this story as highlighting the overall themes and motifs. We only have one spot in the story where anyone is accused of being an abo, and that is both an odd instinct for our narrator to have when he's accusing Dr. Marsh of being at least half an abo. And other than that, we just get over and over again that Vale's hypothesis has been discredited even by Vale herself, perhaps. And I actually want to read what she says about her own hypothesis, though at the time in the story, we don't know um, that it's her who has created this idea. This is what uh, Aunt Janine says about Vale. She's rejecting the notion that the abos could imitate anybody at all. She says this, of course, there's not the slightest evidence that they could do anything of the sort. They simply died off before they could be thoroughly studied. And Vale, who wants a dramatic explanation for the cruelty and irrationality he sees around him, has hung 50 pounds of theory on nothing. Now, we talked about this in the episode, but I think we emphasize the hanging of the 50 pounds on, of theory on nothing and not the desire of Vale to be able to explain the cruelty and irrationality that they see around them. And I think we brought this up in our uh, last episode when we were talking about whether or not Vale's hypothesis was an, really an explanation of the stagnation and atrophy of this family and not about the abos themselves. And that line seems kind of oddly prophetic in, in hindsight. But there's also something very important that we missed in our coverage, and this was my fault, uh, in the episode when we were talking about the dreams. We missed one. And it's probably the most important one, (laughs) though it doesn't explain anything of the story. It speaks directly to this question that you're asking. It's on page 34 of the 1994 Orb Edition that we've been using this whole time. And this is a dream our narrator has right after he talks to his aunt about Vale's hypothesis. And the narrator works very hard to convince the reader that the night after he spoke to his aunt and before the first time he is drugged is when he has this dream, the first dream of Abos. And it's odd to me that he's working very hard to convince us to convince us of this, given the content of the dream and given what we think the dreams are potentially about. I'm going to read this dream as I read the others. This is right after he leaves his aunt. That night, and I am reasonably sure it was the same night, I dreamed of the abos of St. Anne, abos dancing with plumes of fresh grass on their heads and arms and ankles, abos shaking their shields of woven rushes and their nephrite-tipped spears until the motion affected my bed and became in shabby red cloth, the arms of my father's valet come to summon me as he did almost every night to his library that night. And this time I am quite certain it was the same night. That is the night I first dreamed of the abos. So this is indicating that he's dreamed of them since this, the pattern of my hours with him, which had come over the four or five years past to have a predictable sequence of conversation, holographs, free association and dismissal, a sequence I had come to think of 
to think inalterable changed. So we see the shift from I'm reasonably certain to I'm quite certain. And this is the first time he dreams of Abos. And the reason why he needs to believe that he dreamt of the Abos before the drug treatments is because the drug treatments are designed to dissolve his sense of self and get him to remember his past selves. And if it's the case that this dream of Abos came after the drug sequences, it could indicate what we all suspect, what Vale suspects, that the humans on this planet are really Abos. So I don't know. After reading this all the way through this week, after kind of only reading it in the 10-page chunks that we covered it in, the Abos are all over this story. And so I don't know. I don't know the answer but they're really important to this story. <laughs> Absolutely they are. And I'm not going to point to any one character and say that person is probably an abo. Though I think that we can take Wolf's cue and consider that someone probably is, if not in this story, but that one or both of the next two stories are going to take this up and we are going to discover that this is indeed uh, the case, that Bale's hypothesis, in some limited sense at least, is going to turn out to be true. On this topic of the experiments being about, or at least being wrapped up in Vale's hypothesis, in the question of, are we humans or are we abos? I have a couple things to say. One is really just another question about what is going on. It had been my assumption that even if all of the settlers, both the French-speaking settlers and the English-speaking settlers, were killed by abos and then uh, the abos then took their form and pretended to be humans just in case any more humans came. Even if that was true, I have always felt that that's not going to be true of the gene wolves and Janine wolf as well, because they are being manufactured from DNA that was brought with them from earth, or at least that was always my assumption because we are told repeatedly that it is the, consciousness in Mr. Million, who is, whose body supplied the DNA that is being copied. And we know that that person died during the process of uploading himself. There's no explicit textual evidence to say that that death occurred on earth, but I have always assumed that it did. Uh, I'm going to keep operating on that assumption. And based on that assumption, I had at one point been considering that part of what the father character is doing in the lab is actually testing whether or not David is an abo or part abo because he has been created uh, perhaps through a mixture of the Gene Wolf DNA and someone else, a, a, a woman on this planet. And so he's been checking to see if uh, maybe David actually is an abo or part abo. I agree with, with what you're saying. Um, Though the dream does call this into question in my mind, particularly the insistence of that dream being before the drugs have begun to take hold of our narrator's system. It's also the case that the planet has only been colonized for about 140 years, and that the first wave of colonists are the ones who are affected by the notions found in Vale's hypothesis. We're also told that the mother and 
the wife of Mr. Million, the mother of the clones and the wife of Mr. Million is of Irish and Welsh or perhaps Scottish ancestry um, and not French. So my guess here is that Mr. Million has come on the second wave. So yeah, I can buy all that. But I also think it, it does call into question if he's there that early, there's a chance that he has witnessed some of this and he's just caught up in his own world or can't do anything about it because he's a, an unbound simulator and doesn't have the capacity to comprehend the whole situation as he arrives, as you suspect, as a 10-9 unbound simulator, which means that Mr. Million, the first Gene Wolf, was uploaded as a robot on Earth, came to Saint-Croix as Mr. Million with his DNA and did the first clone himself and actually built Maison du Chien as Mr. Million, which, I mean, calls into question the notion at the end that he's unable to keep the demi-mundanes in line, that they're all gone. Something has happened to Mr. Million that has made him very ineffective as time has gone on in this past 140 years since he's arrived on Saint-Croix. Not the least of which, I mean, he's mentioned as the dead man at the at the ship's wheel in the most important dream sequence in the book. Yeah, obviously, Mr. Million is at the center of all of this. I, I, I'll say that I had always assumed, again, no explicit textual evidence, but my impression had been that Mr. Million accompanied or was accompanied by uh, the first clone that he made, which he made on Earth, though there is no explicit textual evidence for that. Uh, we're going to take up Mr. Million in extreme and perhaps excruciating detail here uh, when we get into our themes and motifs. But I, I have a few more questions about uh, about Abos, and then there's one more mystery that we want to talk about as well, or, or perhaps even a, a puzzle. And one reading that I want to offer of Vale's hypothesis and this question of whether or not all of these people are Abos is also wrapped up in the question of if they are Abos, do they know it, right? This is the, the part of the conversation between the narrator and uh, Aunt Janine about the word perfect, right? This question of if they have so perfectly appro approximated the humans that no one can tell the difference, then they must have surely lost their ability to transform again and simply might not know that they're not actually human. That does seem to be something that uh, if Aunt Janine has thought this problem through such that he, she's written a scholarly article about this. And if her brother is doing experiments on creatures in the basement laboratory uh, that seem to be trying to get at questions of identity and even maybe questions of like Jungian memory or like genetic memory in a, almost a Lamarckian sense, uh, epigenetics, we might even say, then there might actually be something going on there, right? That this family business is actually completely wrapped up in this hypothesis, in this supposition that they themselves all might actually be abos and they want to find out. Right. It's a question I don't know that we can answer right now because we haven't read the other two texts, which all the scholars, all the writers on Wolf seem to think explain all of this. I will say we do have evidence throughout the story of a lot of plastic surgery happening, a lot of body modification and alteration of humans to look odd or unique or perfect in the case of uh, Phaedria, and that the population is dwindling or atrophying, that we have all of these things going on of the core population of the colonials. Though, 
I have no textual evidence to support this, my suspicion is that the gypsies and criminal tribes are doing okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably right. Well, I, I think maybe we can even think about the next puzzle in terms of Vale's hypothesis. And, and this is the question of David. Why is there no evidence that David is the son of the father character? And to what extent is that wrapped up with this question of, are some people abos? There could be a very simple explanation, at least simple for Wolf, of why David is not on any registry anywhere. It's because he was bred of with a prostitute for the sole intention of being a control for an experiment that the father is running. And David, being a bastard, has no paperwork. This is something that I could imagine that I imagine could benefit him, David, as he goes to the Capitol and can create any persona or identity he wants. We spoke of kind of the hope of David in terms of a theme of this story. And the fact that he has no identity, he's in no way connected to the Maison du Chien, to his father's string pulling, his bribing of the police, all of these terrible things actually frees him to be good in a way that if he were claimed by the father, would it would be impossible for him to be a presence of hope uh, when he's got the baggage of the family around his neck. Yeah, certainly that's going to turn out to be a boon for David, and I think we'll talk more about that later. This, for me, my thoughts about why this is actually something of a puzzle, uh, a mystery really, is because we are living in a world in which... Uh, Every night for about three hours on TV, we can watch dramas that are 100% about DNA tests. Um, And this is a story about DNA. It's a story about copying DNA and growing new people from it. It's about cloning. But Wolf's not writing this in a world where DNA testing is a thing that people do to solve paternity, questions of paternity, uh, in order to uh, deal with matters of real estate inheritance. So this probably does just mean paperwork, as you say, that there's no birth certificate for David. Right. And also, what would it mean for the police to actually have to solve these problems of missing children or paternity or all these things where children are bought and sold freely while the authorities turn a blind eye in the back alleys and dark corners of Port Mimizan? So what child belongs to who is of no consequence. And most of these people are in terrible debt or have no money to speak of whatsoever. Even the wealthy merchants are leveraging their debts against their collectors in order to maintain the appearance of wealth. Right. So what the legal system on San Croix would be looking for is a free, that is not slave, resident of the household and that's going to be aunt janine and only aunt janine so of course she's going to be named the heir under a legal system like that i think that's less mysterious than i actually thought it was at first yeah but it does really speak to the way politics work and why you and i both have this instinct that a part of this story is about a reformation of this political system through the hope of david who is really the promised child of their father, though he can't, though the father can't see it himself. I think what's important to keep in mind as we're looking at these mysteries is that they do 
align with the themes and motifs of the story. I think when we get to why this story is a masterpiece, when we talk about craft, we have to look at whether or not the answer to the puzzles supports the emotional heavy lifting that Wolf is doing as a writer. And this is something we've brought up in the past and why the puzzles and mysteries are fun. But if the answers don't support what Wolf is trying to say, it doesn't work. It's not a masterpiece. And this one is. So let's talk, Glenn, about the themes and motifs of this story so we can see if the answers to the puzzles and mysteries support what Wolf is trying to get across to the reader. Yeah, I think this is the real meat, the real heart of the discussion here. The first thing that we need to talk about that is plastered all over this story is the the theme of identity or the, the theme of personhood and, and questions about what it means to be a person and how we construct our identities and what they mean for us. And there are a number of examples that we have of this, and I think we're just going to take them in order. And I think that the most important one, uh, or at least maybe the one that we get first, is Mr. Million, right? Uh, and there is this intense question of to what extent is Mr. Million the same being as the human ancestor of the narrator who uploaded himself into the unbound simulator? Is he that same person? Is he a different person? Where in that spectrum of ans- of where in that continuum does the answer lie? I think to answer this question, we need to really dive a little bit into philosophy of mind. In, in, in the question being asked here is, what is the mind? Can the mind be separated from the body and still have meaningful experiences? Um, there's a famous experiment called the brain in the vat experiment, where if you were just a brain, saying you is odd here, but if there was a brain in a vat, and we mastered all of the stimuli and pathways that give us our sense of being, and a mad scientist were somehow able to stimulate everything perfectly, where you could see the world around you and and different things. Is that what makes up the world? Does the world actually exist in our mind? Where is color? Is color in the mind or is it in objects? These are crazy questions. I'm just going to limit it to this old (laughs) argument, which goes back to the early 18th century, which is of of mechanistic, the mechanism of the brain. And this this question of whether or not uh, a machine could have a mind, as we talk about mind, is full consciousness, was argued against by uh, Leibniz. He, He proposed a thought experiment that if you were to expand the brain, to such a size, like say a mill, I think he used, that each functional part could be seen and manipulated, it would still be difficult to imagine how such a thing could create effects such as perception or consciousness. How do we perceive things? John Searle famously rediscovers this argument in, I think, the 1980s, maybe late 1970s, um, with the Chinese room experiment, which is another thought experiment. And this basically states that the mind must be more than a series of simple inputs and outputs. You input a certain stimuli and you get a certain result. 
And this question really wonders, is the mind actually a thing in itself? What is the remainder? What is the surplus that we receive by being embodied, by there being objects in the world, by, you know, extensionality? And this is the core question of Mr. Million. Is he just a series of inputs and outputs? Is he... uh you know, just a billion stimuli in the brain, a, a, able to process a billion words a second or a minute or whatever it is? Or does he have that surplus because he is perhaps embodied? We see him reading a book. Is he able to learn and change? Or is he stuck the same way that this line of clones are stuck? That's the question. I don't think the narrator gives us an answer. I'd like to propose that Mr. Million is able to grow and change, that his not just reading of the book, which is a great little clue. He's sitting by the bedside of our narrator reading a book while while there's a spring storm. But that moment of sentimentality that he hasn't experienced since he's been uploaded is an indication that he is more than just a circuit board. I think you've really deftly highlighted the, 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 the two questions that are at play here. And, and the one is, is Mr. Million a person at all? And I think the evidence is 100% in favor that yes, he is. Certainly that beautiful image of him reading a book during a spring storm, which is something you and I have been getting to do a lot lately here in Philadelphia. Uh, really evokes a sense of being a person. He gets too emotional to talk about his past and and especially to talk about the death of the body that once contained him. He seems also to genuinely care about the two boys. He takes care of the house for the narrator while he is gone. Uh, He does seem to be someone who has emotions, who has desires, has wants, uh, probably has a variety of needs, though we don't really see too many of them, uh, and does things when he has downtime. He isn't a machine that just sits idle or turns off. He's reading a book for some purpose. Uh, That all is a person to me, someone with agency in the world and desires and wants. But there is the other question of, is he the same person who was in that body? And as you say, it is a question of how much is our sense of self, our identity wrapped up in our bodies, or is it our mind alone? I I think that the first time that I read this story, I thought that Wolf was coming down definitively on the side of no, we can liberate ourselves from our body, a sort of trans-human reading of this text. I'm less certain that that's true. In part, I'm older now, and my body doesn't function as well, and I realize how much that affects my mood. Both my wife and I woke up yesterday extremely grumpy because we didn't sleep very well. We then also made the mistake of going to Ikea together in that state. But our grumpiness (laughs) and and, uh, our Ikea experience was entirely about the fact that we didn't get enough sleep. It was because ourselves are contained within a body that has uh, physiological and chemical inputs on our moods and how we respond to external stimuli. And so I don't know that Wolf is making such a simple statement as I thought when I read this story at age 23. Yeah, it's a real question. And it's caught up in Descartes' 
initial skeptical question or statement that was a major part of the Enlightenment, which is, I think, therefore I am, that our mind is can be somehow separated from our body, that our mind can also be separated from our environment and from the things that make up our world and the details that we can live in this abstract realm without external stimuli. And more and more, um, I've become a fan of the the critiquers of the Enlightenment who think embodiment is a crucial feature of our experiment, that the abstract is not actually as important as the local and the mundane and the, the minute details that make up our realities. And by being attentive to those, we get a stronger sense of personhood rather than being attentive to what our mind alone is by separating our minds from our bodies and our environment. And I think as we brought up, uh, you know, kind of the argument I was pushing for uh, when we talked about the Phaedrus was that this is a mind trapped in hell. It's a different body. It's unable to change. And there's nothing it can do but watch the degeneration of its own line, or at least watch the worst part of itself be repeated until somebody comes and turns it off. And we also are told here, crucially, that Mr. Million is not a computer program. He is scanned up into the computer. So there's also that sense of personhood there. But I think that scene where he's too emotional to talk about himself is his realization of what he's lost. It is this recovery of himself in some way, the memory of himself. So I don't know. I think he is himself in some way. That's probably too horrible to think about. We still have several categories that we want to look at this question of identity and personhood in before we get to our next big theme and or motif, which is religion. But this question of souls is also wrapped up in this question of identity and personhood and really is brought about in the evocation of Plato's Phaedrus, which, as you pointed out in the episode where we really dug in on that, is about souls. And what we didn't really talk about in that episode, because we were, we're saving it for now, is how important Plato's understanding of this question of are we bound to our bodies or are our selves, our identities, our personhood, is that unbound, is that unconnected or disconnected from our bodies, or can it be disconnected? This is an extraordinarily important question in early Christianity, a religion about eternal life after our bodies are dead. By the time we get to late antiquity, there is a real intense philosophical and theological debate that is happening among the community of learned Christians around the Mediterranean about whether or not the eternal life is going to happen in our bodies or external to our bodies. Do we need to preserve our bodies in order to have that eternal life, or do we not need to do that? That really speaks to the notion that the fact that the soul cannot get free of the body, which is in the Phaedrus, also in this question of the bodily resurrection. But what happens if you are trapped in a body that doesn't age, and there's no way for the mind to, the mind has actually been destroyed. And that stream of consciousness 
that unbroken connection between the last waking moment of Mr. Million and the upload into this false eternal body, this false resurrection, is really the question at play here, which is another argument for Mr. Million really being this figure stuck in hell more than any other character. Right. The question here, perhaps, is whether or not Wolf is advocating that we all go upload ourselves into computers or not. I don't think he is, though my first reading of this text almost 20 years ago, I would have said, yeah, he's definitely advocating for that. How awesome would that be? That sounds great. I would like to live forever, too. I think that Wolf thinks this is a bad thing, that in fact, this is an artificial eternality, that he is not fully himself here because he has prevented himself from uh, you know, going to heaven, uh, to put it simplistically. He's extraordinarily prideful. And this is an audacious thing to do, to not only artificially continue your own consciousness, uh, which is prideful. And by pride, I mean, this is the, the, the kind of the, the, the vice of pride, which is taking God's place in the role of creation, in the role of the world, but also to see if he can continue his consciousness artificially through another a biological line. And so Mr. Million is really a, a wicked character. And uh, I think Gene Wolfe is imagining his love of science run amok and the conflict it could cause with his own his own religious beliefs. And I, I really do think that part of this story is Wolfe working these ideas out for himself, revealing himself to himself as the narrator is doing the same thing. Yeah, let's just jump right into the question of cloning, because you've really hit it on the head here, that he's trying to live forever in two different ways, one by capturing his soul and artificially uh, keeping it in the physical realm, while also duplicating his body over and over again. And this absolutely raises the question of, do these clones have souls? if their bodies are just copies of someone else whose soul has still not left this part of the universe, this part of creation. The clearest example we get of these clones, besides number five, are the slaves in the marketplace, that the majority of the clones have been turned into slaves in some capacity. We know the father has made nearly 50. We know he's he's done terrible experiments. He clearly is responsible for the four-armed clone this horrible monster that the narrator thinks this is only possible if you have twins so the he thinks whoever made this has destroyed two people where the father can do this because he's just discarding life and this speaks to Phaedria's concern that it would be terrible if these were human and this is right in the midst of a discussion about the destruction of the soul in order for these slaves to be purely bodies. So we have the other side of this equation where somebody is doing something to the mind in order for a thing to be purely a body. And because it's a body, we don't have to think of it as human because in the same way that David says, we can think of abos as humans because they're dead. 
because if they were alive, they would want something from us and they would be our enemies. In the same way, they take desire, they strip the humanity from these slaves so they don't have to think of them as humans. And this is all the clones that we see, the broom sweeper in the marketplace and the number of children who may have just been sold. You know, my hope is that some of them found a loving home. And Dr. Marsh doesn't really treat either the narrator or his father like they're actual people. I mean, he certainly asserts, really claims that they're all a single individual because they have the same DNA. Uh, To me, that's an absolutely ludicrous assertion. Uh, What do you... we, We might be living in a world soon where there are lots of people with the same DNA walking around. That may not be too far-fetched. That would actually happen in our own lifetime. There's no way a legal system is going to treat those people as individuals. This is just a ludicrous claim. But Marsh makes this claim as if this is what people believe on Earth. They also have outlawed cloning. So maybe maybe they do have a legal system that treats it that way. But it does raise the question of to what extent our personhood, our individuality, our, our sense of self, our identity is tied to our dna and we this really this is just another way of posing the same question that we've already asked about mr million before we leave off this line of thinking i want to point out something that only occurred to me now listening to you speak about this problem brandon which is that wolf presents us here with two brothers who share similar dna and who are you know growing up not even just in the same house, but in the same dormitory, the same room, sleeping, sharing, you know, bedroom space together. They have the same tutor. They're the only students of that tutor. One of them grows up to be a monster. That's the narrator. And one of them seems to escape this. And we're going to talk more about that later. But it occurred to me now while you were talking that the one who grows up as a monster is the sickly child who doesn't play outside the healthy one who seems to have goodness or at least to escape monstrosity is ruddy is healthy who plays racket sports and takes up fencing i didn't notice this when we were reading it before but this has to be something wolf is doing intentionally here about bodies and their relationship with our personhood and our identities the father is often described as looking sickly or ill, uh, at least in one very important section of the story when the narrator really thinks his father could die, and that means he could be free. Yeah, I do think, at the very least, Wolf is pointing out that vitamin D is important, so you should get some sunshine, and exercise is important too, so take up racquetball at least a couple times a week. And one other thing, don't live in uh, hallways full of rat feces. You don't want to be breathing that stuff in. Yeah, not good for you. We can definitively say that that is true. Real important uh, <laughs> lesson I learned from reading this story. Well, let, let's move on to the the last area where we see these questions about personhood raised. And this is in talking about the abos. And Mr. Million poses very early on in this story this question of whether or not the abos were people. And the question really is, can non-human creatures be considered people or not? Or is personhood restrained or limited only to homo sapiens? That is the explicit text of the argument. 
that the boys have that the narrator picks up that uh, the humans are described as being from the line of Adam, typically using that kind of Western uh, mythological approach and that other intelligent life can't be said to be human. Now, this I don't think is too controversial of an argument because just because something isn't a human doesn't mean it can't be an intelligent life form. The problem is, is that the abos are clearly gone. There are no abos left for anyone on San Qua to speak of, and maybe there are none left on St. Anne, as John Marsh indicates. But as we're talking about this way that John Marsh does not treat the clones as humans, as people, that they are less than a person because they're the result of some scientific experimentation and not the result of proper procreation and the way people ought to be made. And it's anti-evolutionary. It's not even, Wolf doesn't even bring up Christianity once in this story. He says that this sort of thing is anti-evolutionary, that this sort of thing has happened on earth a lot before. And that's why it's been outlawed because this, the maybe the worst of the line always comes out in this way. But it makes me think that the narrator is picking up on this sense that he's not being treated like a person. And this narrator has the same pride that his whole family has, this desire to be recognized for his greatness. And his attack on John Marsh, calling him an abo, who learned about anthropology from books that came from Earth 20 years ago, is a similar claim. He's calling Dr. Marsh inhuman and saying, we don't owe you anything. And in fact, you don't even have the right to be speaking to us in this room because we are the humans and you are not. This is also a commentary on colonialism. This is the people who come in to a place and wish to turn it into a habitat for themselves and have to think of the people that were there before them as less than in order to get the most out of what they want. And either the people that were there before conform and adapt and mimic the new dominant culture, or they get exterminated. This is what the French did, though Vail's hypothesis claims that they lost when they got to Saint Croix. But then they were also subjected to this. And the English came, but there's still a sense of pride in being a secret French aristocrat on St. Croix. So there's a lot going on with this question about personhood, about who is the most dominant, who has the most right to give the perception of the world to those around them, which is really a violent way to live. But this is the way of colonialism. Wolf, definitively here wants us to understand that the answer is yes, that the Abos are people as much as Homo sapiens are people. He wants us to be thinking about this because we could discover alien life at any moment. Certainly that's you know something a science fiction writer is supposed to be discussing. Wolf has discussed this. We talked about it at length in Alien Stones. There are some other stories we know that are coming up when we are all done with this novella collection that are going to deal with this question as well. But Wolf is placing this question in a setting that is meant to evoke a time in our own species history when we were faced with the same question. Are people who are different from us also people? And 
we definitively said no and then enslaved them and or exterminated them or a combination thereof treated people horribly by dehumanizing them wolf is making this juxtaposition explicitly so that we will understand that the answer is yes. And I think that this is also really wrapped up in Wolf's religious views, as it almost always is. Uh, And I think perhaps on that note, we can move into talking about the theme of religion in this story. We've got, again, a number of things that we want to talk about under this heading here. But I think the most prominent one in this story is the imagery of hell and trapped souls. And it seems like it would probably be useful to catalog all of this again in one place now that we've gotten all the way through the story, even though we were doing this uh, as we made our way through it. Let's just start with the hell imagery. First, obviously, we have Cerberus, who guards the Maison du Chien. Uh, Cerberus is the guard dog of the underworld, whose job it is not to keep people out of hell, but to keep souls in Hell, the underworld in Hades. Um, the address of the home is 666 Sultan Beak. We have all this imagery of rot and decay, not just only in the street name surrounding the house, but within the house itself. There is loads of imagery of scarlet, of this color of hell, of blazing. The father wears a scarlet robe. When the demi-mundanes come to the play, it's as if the banners of hell are uh, blazoned across the sky, and that's caught up in this imagery of a colonial war, a civil war. And then at, at the end of the story, while the narrator is in prison, we have this pit of red clay that has no bottom. So that's a lot of the hell imagery, and then everything else just speaks to the nature of the trapped souls. It just reinforces the that Cerberus is the guardian meant to keep people in. Mr. Million is trapped. These people are trapped in a horrible cycle. And it, I think as I brought up, anytime you have people stuck in a place repeating the same tasks that harm themselves, this is imagery right out of Dante's Inferno. Yeah, which, as far as I can tell, is almost strangely one of the few illusions that we don't get in this story. Though we do get Virgil, who is Dante's guide, uh, evoked here. The Odyssey, also Euripides, all of these classical illusions that are about journeys to the underworld. We also have Milton, who's invoked. And, of course, the repeated images or motifs of basements and the holds of ships and pits and just descending constantly constantly. And so Wolf almost bombards us with this sense that the planet of San Croix is hell and that people's souls, the people who are here are souls that are trapped here uh, in this horrible prison that they are unable to escape, unable to uh, reach uh, heaven, reach the light to achieve an eternal life that is good. Right. We never have word of a star crosser launching from port mimizan we only have crash downs this light blazing light falling from the sky crashing into the water to put out its flame from the atmosphere nobody talks about anybody leaving port mimizan it is as if everyone is trapped there the only time we see a ship 
in the cosmos, in the heavens, is in the narrator's dream when he is on deck and he looks down and sees that they are actually in space. They are literally in heaven in this in this odd moment um, in the sky. So, yes, we don't get anything leaving Port Mimizan. Only things that come there are trapped there, including Dr. Marsh. Right. He is seduced into staying on San Croix, even though he possesses the means to go back to Earth. He is seduced into staying there by the promise of money, by the promise of status and prestige, and seemingly by the prostitutes in the Maison du Chien. That there's a hedonism on Saint Croix that appeals to the baser parts of his nature that he's going to indulge and not return, not go back up into the sky. Exactly. We also have Phidria, who was overcome with a desire to 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 make money, and we think it's to be free, but she does maybe get herself into a good situation, but she returns to the underworld. She can't break free. Aunt Janine is the same way. She is literally trapped by her device to get around the house. And though she's been crippled and desires the inheritance, she gets nothing from it. And she could leave with the wheelchair. She does once, but it's easier to stay in her rooms and float around the house. And so we just have these people who are all trapped. And even the ones who do have the means to leave can't. There is also, though we didn't, I I don't think anyway, talk about this with nearly as much fervor as we talked about the hell imagery, but there is also imagery of heaven in this story. Uh, We've never talked about the fact that the ships are white and that they have seven masts. And in particular, and this is really my fault because I didn't emphasize it when I did the recap of this because I was really obsessed with talking about kingfishers. But when Wolf is talking about how many masts these ships have, which is impressive, he says they have four, five, and sometimes seven masts. They never have six masts, right? They never have the number of of uh, hell, of of evilness, of villainy, of Lucifer, of Satan in Christian uh, numeric symbolo- symbology or Christian numerology. It goes straight from five to seven. Of course, seven being the number of heaven or the number of God is certainly the holy number, one of the, the holy numbers. That's important. I also think that we really should include in that, right, the fact that the narrator is drawn to heights that are full of dove imagery. That's wrapped up in the sails on these ships in the dream, but also in his excursions on the top level of the library, right? So he is drawn to these heights that are full of imagery that's related to the peace that God promises to people. But in the end, the narrator chooses the mad scientist laboratory in the basement of a brothel. What do you think we're meant to take away from that? I think something we're supposed to question here is whether or not the narrator has a choice at all in where he ends up. All of these people, this line of Mr. Million, are are all cursed. It, they're cursed, and that's how I see them. They, this is Mr. Million's private hell, which is kind of how I read the story. Even though we're given the point of view of one of the clones of number five, this story is really Mr. Million's private estate in hell. 
in the dream imagery, he is undead. He is unable to affect the course that he has set these people on. He can't stop the next line from doing these experiments again. He has perhaps set up the Maison du Chien. He has allowed this to continue without being able to influence it. And he is also the first of these these people to make this choice. Even when the narrator is in the tattered mountains, you know, which is another imagery of height, he has the chance to reform, to change. He he makes friends with the robots. He do, he acts in such a way that beings respond in kindness towards him. And yet we see him kill that bird to eat, which is this albatross imagery that you brought up. And when he returns, he becomes obsessed with answering the questions of why this was done to him. And he can't let it go. It's a scab he can't stop picking. And this was exactly the point Dr. Marsh is is making, is that you created this and it's unable to change. And so if this story is about hell, about someone's hell, if Gene Wolfe is Mr. Million, this is really what's going on, this inability to change the graft and the vice and the worst aspects of the self that go on in eternity. That is the part of us that gets burned away in this final judgment in the Christian tradition. But if you're talking about hell imagery, especially from Milton and Dante, that this is all that remains. This is all that remains of the people who are unrighteous, who are evil. And this is Wolf, Wolf's examination of his, maybe his own evil tendencies or just evil in general. Well, I certainly love the idea that this is a, a gothic tale about a cursed lineage. And I think we can certainly make a, a case for that. And, and maybe we'll address that more fully when we talk about colonialism, which we're going to get to in a little bit. We should make it clear that to the extent that there is imagery about heaven, it's vastly outnumbered by this hell imagery. But also, importantly, it only happens in the waking world when the narrator is a genuine child before he's being subjected to the abuse that is going to ultimately turn him into a monster. After that begins, it only happens in dreams that we get this this imagery of heaven. It is as if he is being robbed of these choices through the abuse that he is uh, is suffering. But you brought up the time that he spends in the prison in the tattered mountains as as being a, a, a crucial moment where he has real choices. I actually think that the crucial choice happens in the warehouse with the the four-limbed slave. And one of the reasons that I think that that is the crucial moment is that, to me, that seems to be the narrator's literal descent into the underworld that all of these other heroes who are evoked, all these other protagonists who are evoked in the illusions go through. Odysseus, uh, Aeneas, and Hercules, or Heracles as well that this is the moment where we get him descending through the roof of the warehouse, going through different levels of hell, which actually might be our Dante's Inferno uh, illusion there, and getting down to the bottommost level of hell, being confronted with uh, an image of himself, which is, uh, that's straight out of classical literature. This happens, uh, maybe we might say most fully in the Aeneid, when 
Aeneas actually meets his own descendants as well as his own ancestors and has a conversation with them, the narrator meets an image of himself and is faced with the question of, should we leave or should we do violence? And his first impulse is to actually want to leave without doing the violence until there's secret knowledge that he realizes he can get if they do violence to this creature, if they kill this person, we should say. And then he chooses, not just chooses to kill the person, he champions killing the person. He talks his brother into doing it and then wounds his own brother in the attempt to do it and doesn't even get the prize that he came for. I think that's the moment where he hits bottom, both figuratively and literally. You're absolutely correct about that. And it is the ease in which he's able to do murder and wound his brother, the lack of empathy or remorse he feels, uh, his his desire for pure knowledge is what is holding him back from changing. And even in the mountains, he could be reflecting on his life choices in these ways and saying, I took a wrong turn, but he just wants to get back to get the knowledge again. And that you're right. That is the moment where not only does he... Fu- encounter himself in the person of the forearmed slave, but also in the mirror that shatters. He literally loses himself in this moment. It is a symbolic and literal confrontation with the self in which he shatters himself. He breaks himself into pieces in order to get what he wants. And that is his own choice. That is his choice. Well, on this topic of the hell imagery, the heaven imagery, and the the trapped souls, I I think this is so complex and so beautiful, but also so fundamental to this story. Uh, I would love to know what listeners uh, thought about this, also allusions, uh, references, imagery that we missed. We'd love to hear about that. But I think let's move on to some of the more explicit references to Christian scripture that crop up in this story. Uh, And I think these happen in, in two ways. We get some references to aspects of the Christ story. We also get uh, references to the story of King David, but let's start with the Christ story. So we get most explicitly that these planets are named after elements of Christ's biography, St. Anne named after his maternal grandmother and St. Croix named after the uh, torture device upon which his body died. I think what's interesting to me about the naming of this planet Saint-Croix and also having it be a hellscape, a place where people are trapped, a place where the souls are trapped, is that in Christianity, the, the crucifixion is the point in history where God's wrath is satisfied, where his sense of justice is fulfilled, where all the wrongdoing that has uh, that people have committed against him is satisfied because of Christ's sacrifice. You can go all the way back to the first Passover in the Old Testament to see this imagery of the sacrificial lamb and how it plays through. And this is God sacrificing himself to himself. It is a perfect sacrifice. And so I think by naming this planet Saint-Croix, it could be that wolf is showing us what is left on the cross, what is left behind, all of the rot and evil and disintegration and fractured personalities and brokenness and rundownness, and nothing is new, nothing is main new. All of that is 
left on the cross and everywhere else things can be made new. So I think it in a weird way, this is a story about the act of the crucifixion, of the symbolic meaning of the sin of the world being hung there for all time in some way. So I don't know. That's that's kind of why it might be named Saint Croix. Otherwise, I don't know. Maybe Wolf's just having a laugh. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a real serious question there, which is wrapped up in the imagery of hell, the, the real hellscape that the planet of Saint Croix is. And this is the question of, is there hope for redemption? Are these people really trapped here or can they be redeemed somehow? Are they trapped here because they need to be working on their redemption? Uh, that might be that might be true. I'm not quite sure where in the text we see that. But one place where maybe we might get some hope, some optimism, maybe some hint at redemption is in the figure of David, who is very clearly in the text, the King David. Uh, I think maybe we might start by doing something we actually have neglected to do so far in any of our, our recap episodes, which is to really just offer a summary of who King David is in the Bible. David is first and foremost important because he is the kind of first in the line of Christ's ancestors, uh, the the inheritor of the true kingship of Israel. In many ways, the story of David is um, the kind of classic hero's journey. He was a shepherd. He is out in the field. He's a very good shepherd protecting his flock from lions and bears with a with a slingshot. He's musical. He's a beautiful creature. And he is chosen for God, chosen by God, um, not for any reason in particular. God just loves him. He singles him out and is uh, and commands a prophet to go and bring him into the court of Saul. And David and Saul's son, Jonathan, become very close, very good friends, uh, like brothers. And God, through a series of uh, adventures, many of which we all know, like David and Goliath, um, demonstrates that Saul is unworthy to be king, both to the kingdom, but then also to Saul himself, and elevates David to the status of kingship. And this sense of being elevated to the status from a humble family and the close relationship that David has with God, just because God wants it that way, is a picture of God's relationship with his church in in the Bible. So in many ways, David is a very important figure in uh, establishing Jerusalem's geopolitical power at the time, but also in the symbolic way that God models his relationship with his own flock as a shepherd. So he is a person who prefigures the true Messiah. He is maybe one of the first to really prefigure what it means for God's chosen people, what God is attempting to do with his people in the world, and when he sends his Messiah, what that Messiah will accomplish. And we see many of those aspects here in the character of David He's certainly described as being musical and athletic and ruddy and beautiful. 
the character of David here in this story is also supremely interested in, in literature and interested in the religious life of the Abos. And of course, he's also keen to get involved in the politics and the, the government of the planet of St. Croix. All of those parallels are are really clear and really striking. We might also think about the, the fact that the story of David as a boy is uh, coupled with another boy, a sort of adoptive brother, Jonathan, who ought to become king after Saul and, and doesn't. He's kind of the bad pair uh, in, in, in these two brothers. All of that's there. I'm not sure I understand why Wolf is employing this imagery, what he's trying to do with it. Do you have any thoughts about this? It's also not clear to me what he's trying to do with this, other than maybe to try to put some hope in the story. David is the one who becomes all of what the father, his father, desires in this story. He is going to court. He's able to break free. He is not stalled on the ship with the others. Um, and so I think that David, uh, when he wants to go big game hunting and get into politics, and he's able to break free, is meant to demonstrate that he is delivering on the promise, the hope that the father has, but because the father is recreating himself, cannot ever hope to move beyond. And I think that's probably what's going on here. It's just a layer of the story that if you know the illusion, maybe you can get a sense of hope sprinkled into the horror that is the narrator's life. I think that's right. And really, I I think that the use of the imagery here hinges on David's identity as a shepherd who is chosen by God to become a leader of people. And you invoked in your description of David's activities as a shepherd, as being someone who protects a flock, a flock of lambs uh, from lions and bears. But we should probably also add wolves to that mix. And that's explicitly, I think, what is going on here, right? That this is about uh, lifting up, about elevating, about rescuing a good person who can inter can get involved in the politics and the government of this planet and perhaps do something to stop the cycle of predatory violence that is going on in the Maison du Chien and elsewhere uh, on this planet throughout this colonial society. That's, I think, where the hope lies, is that this is a world that needs a protector. This is a world that needs a shepherd. This is a world that needs a pastor. And maybe on that note, we can jump into the next of our themes here, which is colonialism. And I think we could just start by listing very quickly the the facts of the matter, right? Where we see that this is a colonial story. Clearly, it is a story about the colonization of other worlds from Earth. We have here the eradication or subjugation of an indigenous population, We even have waves of colonists, first uh, a wave of French-speaking colonists, and then a wave of English-speaking colonists, which very much parallels the experience uh, of the New World in early modernity here uh, on our own home planet. 
San Croix itself, as you pointed out uh, several episodes ago, Brandon, it is you know the name of an actual colony in the Caribbean. And of course, this all also very much feels like a Gilded Age New Orleans, a New Orleans that has just recently been purchased from France by uh, the young United States, in which there is the old French population and this new nouveau riche, this new uh, commercial and imperialist population from America, all of which exists on a bedrock of grotesque slavery. Those are really kind of the facts of the matter. But I think that we we might also point out some of the thematic things that Wolf is doing, where he's showing us a society that is ruled by greed and oppression, and also uh, really shaped in its character by cycles of abuse and violence. And the way that these systems require the endless othering of different types of people on this planet there's a need to look perfect. There are people outside the system. There are the gypsies and the criminal tribes. There are prisoners. There are different levels of humans. There are slaves in the society that are required. There's just this endless othering, people from Earth, people from St. Anne. And the habit of this culture is also to dehumanize others in order to maintain a sense of dominance or superiority. In fact, one even gets the sense that this whole idea about the abos taking over the first French colony was a justification for the English aggression and violence, uh, the second wave against this French colony, that they're not really humans. Because the, the descriptions of the first settlers and the first adventurers who came here was that some of these abos could have shapeshifted and taken over, though there's no clear description. It's probably the case that the French just destroyed all of them, but that this dehumanization is a justification to maintain power and status, but there's no... It, it, And it needs that, but there's no change in the status quo. And this is the stalling that the family at the center of this novel experiences as well, that this cycle of abuse and violence has is required for them to continue to justify their existence, their continued existence, their cloning, their experiments, but that they don't understand why the status quo is unable to to shift because they're unable to change their behavior. They're unwilling to change. And yet they're still shocked why things don't change. And I think it's worth pointing out that on San Croix itself, because there is no indigenous population of abos to subjugate or oppress there, because we're now even in an age where no one really is able to say that he or she is a you know, pure descendant from the original French colonists, that these the French and Anglo identities have mixed, they've blended here on Saint-Croix. Uh, we realize that the narrator, despite his Anglo name of Jean Wolfe, knows French, or at least knows French phrases, uh, vice versa. In the absence of clear ethnic identities, or maybe even racial identities, or species identities, to find categories of people to oppress. This society has started to manufacture its own people who can be oppressed uh, in terms of slaves, but explicitly in terms of cloned 
people who are made in a laboratory just to be slaves and many of them altered in some way to dehumanize them uh, to to make them monstrous and grotesque to other them in every way possible because this colonial society can only function if there is someone to oppress right and it also as a result cannibalizes its own children and so anybody who as a child escapes the horrors of being a child on this planet and maybe lives with a small sense of love or I don't know, any positive emotion wouldn't want to reproduce. Why would you want to create a child in the normal way on this planet? And this could speak to the dwindling, dwindling population is that this horrible culture incentiv- does not incentivize anybody to produce children other than if they need money. And so anybody who is disgusted by this practice wouldn't have children and the population would not grow as people who go through two or three generations of this no longer wish that to be the case. And when when you think about the mysteries of this world, like why the population is dwindling and you think about child slaves and the impact of that and how this, this question and answer match both thematically and also have a real impact on the understanding of the story and how uh, an interpret interpretation can really elevate the meaning of this story. This is what Wolf does so well. So we should talk about his craft here. What makes this story a masterpiece? And we've talked a little bit about the world and the world building. We, we've addressed a lot of the puzzles, but I think we were getting into this notion of the puzzles of the world, the politics, the nature of the lives of the people on Port Mimizan, what makes this world feel so alive to you, Glenn? As I said long, long ago in our introductory podcast, this is one of, if not the thing that really keeps me coming back to Wolf again and again, just for the sheer joy of reading of being in the moment with a text wolf builds his worlds so richly and so realistically but also seemingly so effortlessly and i think that that is on display at its best here in the fifth head of cerberus and what wolf does so well in all of his stories but especially in this one is to present this fantastical speculative world that he's invented that is born in Wolf's imagination that he's going to share with us through words on a page. He does that through the eyes and through the mouths of the people who live in these worlds. He is never Gene Wolf who's explaining to Glenn and Brandon about this cool fantasy world he invented. He is never doing that. He is only inhabiting the mind of his protagonist, the life of his protagonist, and showing us the world as he lives it, giving us a taste here, a touch there, a a, a whiff of something over there, and we have to build it all together through conversations like this. Yeah, that was really well put. I just love how Wolf has clearly so fully thought of how this whole society functions in this story. And it's 90% of it, like the way we live our own lives, our own as civilians, as people who are part of a population, in, in terms of civics, it's mundane and boring and uninteresting. And he writes like 
an archaeologist who finds a shard of pottery that we'd find interesting, but to the people in the world, it's a dinner plate that broke. And that is what I love about Wolf. And he has mastered it by the time he reaches fifth head of Cerberus. For me, as a professional historian, and in particular, a historian of institutions and the societies that create those institutions and in which those institutions grow and develop and change and collapse, that my day job when I'm not teaching is to reconstruct what are essentially imaginary worlds from limited bodies of written evidence. This is what is my mind is always doing when I am reading speculative fiction as well. And when a world does not seem to make sense, I can't deal with it. I may from time to time shout at my TV when I'm watching Game of Thrones about how no society would have a legal system that operates that way. For example, I never do that with Wolf. Wolf's societies make sense. Wolf is someone who has thought about how our world works, how our institutions, how our society functions, and is using those insights and his great education to craft believable, uh, realistic feeling, real feeling, we should say, lived in fantasy worlds that are breathtaking. Right. And it's a phenomenology of the world rather than kind of an empirical list of the world. It's, It's so different than what many fantasy writers do because he's talking about how his characters experience the world they live in rather than them talking about the world they live in. I can't remember the last time I talked about the world I live in in a way that any fantasy novel would, you know, unless I'm talking about corn subsidies or something like that. But, (laughs) you know, but I, it's just something as an aspiring writer that I am always blown away with is what Wolf must be willing to throw away as a writer to get the best story. And it reminds me of, T.S. Eliot's compliment to to Ezra Pound on the Wasteland, where you know he's basically saying this is this is now a great work because of what you were willing to cut out of it, and I just feel like Wolf must have no sense of preciousness regarding his writing because what he produces is so good that what he throws away is probably also great, but it just doesn't fit with what he's trying to achieve. And it's mind blowing. Well, now that we have that on record too, we can just use this to play to each other when we are critiquing each other's own writing <laughs> in the, uh, the right, editing phase. Right. I'm a, we're going to hold ourselves to this. But I think with that said, let's move on to some more of the, the craft. Something that is just so overwhelmingly present in this text are literary illusions. And I We have done, I hope, a pretty good job of cataloging them as they have come up, but I think it might be useful here just to get them all again in one place now that we've done the entire story. I'm going to kick that one to you, Brandon. So I'm going to name the the big ones primarily, though. I think there are probably some that you and I may have even missed, but I think we got almost all of them. Start off with The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. We've got Virgil, we've got uh, Milton, Ovid, Homer, Proust, Nabokov, um, Raymond Chandler. So much in this story is just evoking the history of literature and Western thought and pulp 
and the genre he's writing with his his kind of litany of the genre writers that he groups with Virginia Woolf. I mean, it's just fantastic stuff. So that's almost all of them, I think. Yeah, of course, there are the books that we encounter in the library, but I think the only ones that I think that you left off that list, Brandon, are Merchant of Venice and uh, Fairy Queen, uh, you know, the, the two 16th century texts. That's just not your century. Right. I think. <laughs> not quite, not quite. But no, you're absolutely right. Merchant of Venice is a huge piece of this, and the Fairy Queen, of course, can't be, can't be forgotten. It's crazy how easily Wolf handles these references in his story to add depth of meaning to what he's doing here. And it's amazing. You don't need to know the illusions to enjoy this story, but they add so much. And also, we've left Plato off the list uh, once again. <laughs> right, of course. I guess I, for me, that was wrapped up not so much as literature, but as intellectual tradition. But of course, it is a literary reference. Plato writes plays that we treat as works of philosophy. Right. And now maybe I'm thinking that, you know, the the... Mr. Million at the helm of the wheel who's doing some ethical discourse. Maybe he's talking about Leibniz in some way. <laughs> yeah, could very well be. And of course, we did already catalog you know, a numerous hell allusions, and we've talked about the, the, the use of scripture uh, and references to scripture, allusions to scripture already. Something that I found really brilliant here about how Wolf uses this to craft a story is that it, it almost feels to me when we're thinking about these illusions, when we're encountering them, when we're cataloging them, when we're discussing how they work, and especially how they work in conjunction with each other, it feels like these are the books that Wolf was reading before bedtime for a month. And on his commute to work in the mornings, or perhaps on his lunch break or something, was thinking about the stories that those works prompt him to think about, was thinking about the ways that those stories really do speak to similar issues, to similar questions, to similar problems of our lives, and took them almost as creative writing story prompts and said, yeah, I'm going to write a story that incorporates Proust, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Merchant of Venice, The Fairy Queen, Raymond Chandler, and the entirety of the classical world. And I'm going to set it on another planet, and it's mostly going to be about cloning. That, that feels like that's what Wolf has done. He's just taken all of like the greatest hits of literature as story prompts. Well, and this is something that Wolf actually admits to doing. And in his uh, comments in The Best of Gene Wolf, following the story of The Hour of Trust, which is not one that I've read. I couldn't possibly have read all of Gene Wolf's stories so far. But um, he, he mentions that whenever he was needing an idea, he would pick up a book and try to turn it into a sci-fi story. That one is begins as a prompt from a Damon Runyon story. Damon Runyon wrote like uh, Guys and Dolls um, or the stories that would become Guys and Dolls. And Hour of Trust is based on what Wolf calls the worst story Runyon must have ever written. But we know that he does this. This beginning of this story is Wolf saying, I was out of an idea. I needed to write a science fiction story because my kids needed school clothes. And I was reading, I opened up the first page of Proust, and then what came out is this story. That was, it literally was a writing prompt. And it's just incredible. And I think it's a great lesson to writers as well. Just start by writing the first paragraph of a new story and see where it goes for you. 
This is something Michael Swanwick does in uh, Not So Much Said the Cat in his pastiche of The Fifth Head of Cerberus in that collection, where he takes the first paragraph of Wolf's story, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, and changes a few details and see what comes out. And this is, I think, something Wolf loves about being a reader, about being a writer. And I think he likes maybe writers riffing on him in this way as well. Absolutely. We have harped on this maybe so many times that it's become almost the central motif of our own show. How much Wolf is a reader, not just a writer, that Wolf is really self-conscious about how he inserts himself into the long continuum of literature in so many different ways. And I think that this is the thing that really makes him you know, the Melville of science fiction. But of course, Wolf is also really deft at creating rich and believable characters who feel like people we might actually encounter out in our daily lives. Uh, and I, I think we decided prior to this episode that we would actually pick a character whose story we would like to know more about and uh, really talk about why we would like to know more about that as kind of a heuristic device for discussing Wolf's characters. And Brandon, I'm going to let you have first crack at this one. My first pick is Mary Doll. And this is because I want to know about the world from her perspective, from a girl who is as seemingly normal as a girl on this planet could be. She goes to the public school. She's on the fringes of this friend group who are young, petty criminals. And she seems to escape that in some way, but then she gets caught up in the functioning of society. And she is someone whose story I really want to know from her perspective. I think Wolf could probably write a whole story from her perspective, given the amount of work he's done to create Port Mimizan anyway. And her compassion, her kindness, the way her sense of being leaves a mark on our narrator as a beacon of light in this world, as the one who holds his hand as he's in the prison camp, hallucinating what kindness is. I want to know what the world looks like from her point of view. I want to know about her struggles being sold into slavery, perhaps as a young child bride. I want to know how she fights off her captor, how she escapes maybe and joins a gypsy or a criminal tribe, how she refuses to have children or becomes uh, one of the great cast of noble savages in, in literature or maybe escapes the planet altogether on a seven-masted ship. I think that's a fantastic answer, and I'm embarrassed that it was not on my list at all. Because you're, the answer you give, Mary Doll, you've given Mary Doll for the same reason that I'm going to name my character, which is that I want to know the answers to the questions that Wolf is asking in this text. Hearing, hearing you talk about Mary Doll makes me realize that Mary Doll is probably the answer to the questions. You want to know more about the world and explore it from the perspective of someone on the outskirts. But I do also think that Mary Doll is, in many ways, the antidote to the hellishness of this world. She's the best, the only good person we actually encounter in this world. Her story probably is the story of how we escape this. But I was thinking that that character might be David, as we've already talked about. And so he was the person that I really 
uh, gravitated towards in this text. No one is surprised by the fact that I love the character who makes puns about uh, Greek literature <laughs> right. and, uh, and also, uh, you know, jo- yeah, puns about about the first lines of the Aeneid. I mean, my, you know, my job is to read Latin poetry and sermons and saints' lives. Uh, so, of course, I'm in love with that aspect of of David's character. But he does also seem to me to be the hero of the story and, and, and somehow the answer to the questions that Wolf is asking, except that maybe actually it's married all. Uh, so I'd like to see both of these stories. And of course, I think really what we should say here is that I would love to invite listeners to write some of their own fan fiction on the order of Michael Swanwick's uh, story that riffs on uh, the fifth head of Cerberus as well. There is a pretty rich tradition actually of Gene Wolfe fan fiction that has been, you know, blessed and published. And I I would love if some of our listeners were to write some and uh, send it to us. It'd be really awesome. Yeah. I would just love that as well. And they're both great characters. Mary doll for me would be uh, the, you know, the noble savage story. And I think David would be the one who changes the system from the, from the inside out. Well, we've come to the the last thing that we wanted to talk about regarding this story, which is the not-to-be-overlooked gorgeous prose that Wolf employs in writing this story. Just like we each picked a character, it, we've each picked a passage here that really stood out to us. But uh, this was an extraordinarily difficult task because every line of this story is the most beautiful sentence I've ever read. This actually was a real labor for me to pick out just one passage. I was keeping track of of the ones that I really wanted to write about. When I got to 27, I decided that maybe it was time to like stop cataloging them <laughs> and just pick one that I really liked. Uh, and I think, Brandon, I'll just let you have the first crack at this one, too. This one comes from page 55. It's our narrator describing the end of the summer that they gave their performances in. Our theater, as I have said, continued through the summer and gave its last performance with the falling leaves drifting like obscure, perfumed old letters from some discarded trunk upon our stage. When the curtain calls were over, we who had written and acted the plays of our season were too disheartened to do more than remove our costumes and cosmetics and drift ourselves with the last of our departing audience down the whippoorwill haunted paths to the city streets and home. And I just love everything he's doing, the alliteration, the rhythm of the sentences, the comma placement. This to me just marries the the sentiment with the technique and demonstrates what I love about Wolf's prose. This is an absolutely gorgeous passage. I read some of this verbatim in in the recap as well, because it is so gorgeous that alliteration you're talking about, drift, departing, down. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. The word disheartened is used in that passage as, as well. Just all of that. We get duties directly. Yeah, it's just stands out so vividly just looking at the page. And of course, you know, I... I'm on record on this podcast as loving nature imagery. All of that here is so beautiful. Uh, there's something in particular that I think is really awesome about this passage as well. And it's it's this uh, simile of leaves drifting like perfumed old letters. 
we've invoked on this show before Neil Stevenson's novel Anathem. In fact, you, you've brought it up before, Brandon. But actually, since we've been doing this podcast, I have read that book again for the second time. And I was reminded that the science fiction monks in that story grow the their writing uh, surfaces, their paper, so to speak, on trees. They harvest leaves from their genetically engineered trees to create their paper. Throughout Anathem, there are several explicit uh, references to the Book of the New Sun, but I, uh, I now think that Neil Stevenson took that idea from just this passage that you read, from just this simile that Wolf uses here. That wouldn't surprise me of Stevenson at his best. And to me, Anathem is... I think Stevenson's masterpiece, though he's written many great novels. And maybe it is because of how much he evokes Wolf in that particular novel. But yeah, to me, this is the top top passage of the of the story. So the passage that I picked out is on page 17, and this is in the library. I suppose this surprises no one that I love the library imagery and the library scene here. Wolf writes... If David preferred to pursue interests of his own farther down, I ascended to the very top, where the cap of the dome curved right over my head. And there, from a rusted iron catwalk, not much wider than one of the shelves I had been climbing, and, I suspect, not nearly so strong, opened in turn each of a circle of tiny piercings. Piercings in a wall of iron, but so shallow a wall that when I had slid the corroded cover plates out of the way, I could thrust my head through and feel myself truly outside, with the wind and the circling birds and the lime-spotted expanse of the dome curving away beneath me. And this passage, you know, it really speaks to me because this is the sort of thing that I still love to do when I am a tourist in any town, any city, any wilderness landscape, I will identify the highest place and I will climb it somehow, whatever way is available to me. And Wolf has described this in a way that really resonates with my own feelings about doing that, but also about my own perceptions. But I picked this passage out also because I think that it is at the core of the narrator's journey. He has an impulse to ascend, to feel free and to survey the world and take in its beauty. And this is a visually beautiful world that Wolf has constructed here, but he is robbed of this joy that he experiences through years of abuse. And he has turned into a basement dwelling monster instead of this young boy who likes to climb and feel the wind in his hair and survey this beauty. It certainly paints a beautiful contrast, as you as you just pointed out, to the man that the narrator becomes. And you can feel the sorrow and the regret in almost in this moment in the in the prose, the freedom and joy of the boy at this moment contrasted with the adult sense of the oldness, the broken downness of this place, the grounded imagery of the corroded plates and the studs and the iron wall and the joy of climbing these library shelves and the sense that this, I suppose, this narrator intruding on the memory, commenting on the memory itself, 
saying that it probably wasn't as great as I remember. There was probably something wrong there. And instead of remembering the joy and freedom of the moment, weaving through that, the corruption of the world, it's a wonderful choice for a passage too. It is absolutely beautiful, grounded imagery, and also tautly constructed with the whole sense of the story and the world and the character's journey. This is an exercise that we could have done with almost any passage in the text. And it's an exercise, in fact, that we would encourage readers of Wolf, really maybe readers of anything uh, to do from time to time. But we wanted to end this episode on this note because we wanted to circle back around to the pure joy of reading these stories for fun, for the pleasure of them. We have now spent, well, we haven't edited these episodes yet. It will probably come out to be close to 15 hours of us talking about this one novella that we could have read into a microphone in about an hour. And we've done all of that, tearing it apart, talking about the meaning of things, questioning it, uh, critiquing it. But at the end of the day, we're all here because we love these stories and we wanted to end on that note. Absolutely. And there is almost no greater pleasure than doing a close reading on a great work of literature because all it does is increase the pleasure in reading it over and over again. I read each section of this story probably between three and five times uh, each week before we prepared the discussion and really went into it uh, on top of a few other sources. But my favorite part of covering this story was this past week when I just got to sit down and read it without having to think about it. And that is the joy of covering Wolf for me as well. So yeah, you're absolutely right, Glenn. There is so much joy here, but if you put the work in, there's even more depth. There's more pleasure on top of the joy. Well, on that note, that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us, as always, and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this masterpiece. Be sure to send us your fan fiction about the fifth head of Cerberus and point out all of the literary allusions that we know we must have missed. Yeah, I feel real lousy about missing that one dream about the Abos because that's really important to one of the core mysteries of this puzzle. I'm sure we'll hear about it, but for uh, our listeners who maybe listen to this first and are meeting us in the far future, sorry. Next time, Wolf Scholar and friend of the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, Mark Aramini, will be joining us again to talk about this novella, settle some of our disputes, and bring up new, fresh insights he's had since he's published Between Shadow and Light. I'm really excited about this conversation because every time I've talked to Mark or seen things he's written, it just generates a whole new batch of interest and insight in Wolf. And he loves the conversation about Gene Wolf. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.